Bem-vindos. Welcome. I'm Susana and this is my Portugal. In this very first episode, we're embarking on a journey to explore the vibrant tapestry of Portugal, a country celebrated for its captivating diversity. Today, our compass points to the enchanting North region. Portugal is a nation defined by its regions. Each corner of this country boasts its own unique character, traditions and flavors. Back in school, I had to know every region and river by heart. And little did I know that this knowledge would become a lifelong fascination. So what do you expect from today's podcast? Well, we will begin our journey in the lush and temperate north, known as Minho region. Often called the Garden of Portugal, because it's so green and lush, we'll uncover its rich traditions, Vinho Verde, of course, which is not really green wine, but we'll get to that, and vibrant festivals. Minho is at the very top of Portugal and is border with Galicia, Spain. We will then head to Douro, the birthplace of port wine that we all know about, and explore its terraced vineyards, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and the flavors that flow from its wineries. Our adventure continues to Trazos Montes, which translated means behind the hills, a rugged and wild region of authenticity, where we'll delve into unique traditions and the Mirandese language, o Mirandês. We will then visit Beira, home to the historic villages and exquisite cheese, which I very much love, and discover its picturesque castles and charming landscapes. We'll move on to central Portugal, that beacons with its rich history from Lisbon to the university city of Coimbra, and we'll immerse ourselves in its cultural treasures. Moving south, We've got, of course, Alentejo. With its vast plains offering cork production and mouth-watering culinary traditions. And we'll savor every moment. Finally, we'll explore the sunny Algarve. Renowned for golden beaches and Moorish influences, a true paradise for travelers. In this episode, our focus is on the lush north region of Portugal. Let's begin. At the moment, the governmental structure is based on the 1976 constitution adopted after the Carnation Revolution of 74. In addition to defining the status of autonomous regions, regions autonomous of the Açores e Madeira, the three levels of government are parishes, counties, and administrative regions. Currently, Portugal is divided by North Region, Centre Region, Metropolitan Area of Lisbon, Alentejo and Algarve, as well as Açores and Madeira. 
and today we will talk about the North region. The North region comprises of this district of Viana do Castelo, Braga, Porto, Vila Real, Bragança, and part of the district of Aveiro, Viseu, and Guarda. The northern region of Portugal is known by its rich history, including the city of Guimarães, the birthplace of Portugal, which we will talk about further. It was initially inhabited by several pre-set Celtic tribes and Celtic before having commercial relationships and being visited, attacked and conquered by various people, really, including the Greeks, Carthaginians, Romans, Germanic, even Vikings, which I didn't know. The diverse culture includes folk traditions, delicious cuisine and famous port wine, of course. In 2001, it was time to recognize the historic center of Guimarães and Alto Douro wine region as living evolutionary cultural landscape. The Douro Valley, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, is the birthplace of port wine. Its terraced vineyards, skillfully carved into the landscape over centuries, produce the grapes that create this iconic fortified wine. The unique microclimate, soil type and altitude variations in the Douro Valley result in a diverse grape variety, contributing to the complexity of the port wine. Port wine isn't just known for its rich flavours, but also its ability to age gracefully. <laughs> I wish. Some vintage ports can age for over a century, evolving in character and complexity. The annual grape harvest, known as the Vindima, is a time of celebration in the Douro Valley. Locals and visitors alike participate in the tradition of stomping grapes to the rhythm of traditional Portuguese music. May I just say that Vindima festival happens a little bit all over the country because there are different wine regions and we will have an episode on that. In the north, there's plenty for tourists to see and visit. There's a growing number of products with a certificate of designation of origin. In addition to wines, there's also the olive oil, smoked meat, honey and other agri-food products. The great value of the heritage and culture associated with these products even led to the creation of theme promotional tours such as the Port Wine Route, the Vinho Verde Route and the Trás-os-Montes Olive Oil Route. The quality of tourism is in continuous growth, based on rich gastronomy and plenty of outdoor facilities and activities of a recreational and sporting nature, contributing to a greater offer of adventure. The region has two geoparks, Aruca Geopark and Terras de Cavaleiros Geopark, recognized for its exceptional geological heritage of international relevance combined with an entire sustainable development strategy. In his romantic work, O Minho Pitoresco, by José Augusto Vieira, in the end of the 19th century, states in particular that Minho, the Garden of Portugal, 
He adds that it was usual in his time, and I quote, We have heard people call this province among all the most populous and the most active, the most picturesque and the most hospitable, a supreme center of the traditions that individualize a nationality. I thought we could split up the North region and mentioned a few cities, regions, villages that may have something that I find interesting to share. Therefore, we can perhaps start with, I suppose, the most important city of the North region, if not Portugal entirely, Guimarães. During the late 11th century, lived a brave knight named Henry of Portugal. He was not just any knight, he was brother of the Duke of Burgundy, and his heart was full of valour and adventure. One day, Henry heard a great battle brewing in the distant lands of Hispania. And Henry, he knew that he had to help. With a heart full of courage, he joined the forces with the mighty Alfonso VI of Leon to fight against the Moors. Their bravery and valor did not go unnoticed. In recognition, the king decided to reward Henry and granted him the county of Portugal as a token of his appreciation. Bear in mind, in this time, Portugal was still part of Spain. This title had been suppressed for some time due to past attempts by others to assert his independence, but now it was restored to its rightful place. Henry's journey didn't end there. As a part of his reward, he also blessed with the hand of Teresa, one of Alfonso's daughters, in marriage. Their love story blossomed amidst the battles and challenges they faced together. At the beginning, the county of Portugal was a dependent land under the Kingdom of Galicia, which in turn was part of the greater Kingdom of Leon. But as the years passed, Henry's heart longed for independence. He dreamt of a Portugal that could stand on its own. Sadly, Henry's life was cut short in 1112, leaving Teresa as the Countess of Portugal. She was not an ordinary lady, she was determined and ambitious, just like her husband. Her sister, Queen Huraca, had become the ruler of Leon after their father's passing, but Teresa had her own dreams of independence. In her pursuit of autonomy, Teresa formed alliances with those who could help her cause, sometimes even with her own sister's enemies. In 1116, the Portuguese people rallied and captured two Galician cities, Tui and Orense. We'd prompt Queen Uraca to attack Teresa's lands, but fate had other plans. A noble named Bishop Diego de Almires, a friend of one of Teresa's allies, led a revolt against Queen Uraca, forced to seek peace. The two sisters reconciled for a while. In 1126, Queen Uraca passed away, and her son, Afonso VII, ascended to the throne. He demanded that Teresa became his vassal, but she refused to bow down. Afonso's response was to march upon Portugal in 1127, and in the midst of turmoil, the power shifted. Teresa's son, Afonso Henriques, rose to prominence for his mother had lost the trust of the Leonese king. He became the new Count of Portugal and Teresa found herself in a delicate situation. She became a pawn in the hands of a Galician nobleman. 
called Ferdinand Perez de Trava. Mother and son found themselves at odds, both longing for control of the county, but it was Afonso's supporters who truly yearned for complete independence. Indeed, Afonso Henriques, the brave young Count of Portugal, was not alone in his quest for independence. His determination was fueled by the support of people, the lords of the great Portuguese cities, the local church and the countless others who yearned for freedom. You see, the counts who ruled over the lands of Portugal and Coimbra shared Afonso's dream of independence. They joined forces and their unity, making them even stronger in their resolve. Afonso Saisto of Leon, aware of the fervent desire for independence amongst the Portuguese, decided to consolidate Galicia under the rule of a single lord, chosen from his own kin. The battle lines were drawn and the struggle for independence began. In a fierce battle, Afonso Henriques emerged victorious, marking the beginning of Portugal's journey toward independence. In the year of 1129, he proudly declared himself the Prince of Portugal, a symbol of his determination to lead his people to freedom. In 1139, with even greater resolve, he assumed the title of King of Portugal asserting the nation's sovereignty. Finally, after years of struggle and negotiation, Leon officially recognized Portugal's independence in the Treaty of Zamora in the year of 1143. It was a momentous occasion, one that marked the culmination of their arduous journey to freedom. Let's talk about a few of the tourist points and the interesting things to see in the city of Guimarães. You can start by visiting the Church of Our Lady of Oliveira, Olive Tree. The Church of Nossa Senhora da Oliveira in Guimarães dominates the Largo da Oliveira and is the first Gothic monument erected in Minho and the Don Juan Primeiro Kingdom to commemorate the victory in the Battle of Aljubarrota, 1385, against Castile. Its origins date back to the monastery dedicated to the saviour of the world, the Virgin of Santa Maria. The current building is the result of several renovations, highlighting architectural elements from different areas, in particular the bell tower with Manuelin characteristics in the main chapel, with classical architecture in Guimarães. Pass through the arcades of the old town hall of Guimarães is another thing to do while you're there. On the north side of Largo Oliveira in Guimarães, the medieval building of the old town hall stands out, whose construction began during the time of Don Juan Primeiro at the end of the 16th century. On the ground floor, broken Gothic arches lead to the Largo de Santiago. Also, of course, explore St. James Square. The Oliveira and Santiago Squares are the epicenter of life in the city of Guimarães. During the Festa Afonsina, which is the main um, party festival in the year, these areas of the city of Guimarães are transformed and takes us back in time. Legend has it that in the Apostle St. James brought an image of the Virgin Mary to Guimarães that would have been placed in a pagan temple in a square that became to be called Praça de Santiago or Santiago. Still preserving the medieval design of Guimarães, 
It is probably the most beautiful square in Portugal and it's there that the nighttime activity in the city Guimarães is concentrated. Just a note to say that uh, there will be pictures and uh, some more references to these places that I'm mentioning so that you have a better idea of what I'm talking about and can visualize it. I think it always helps on my social media. Now, one of the most important things, of course, has to be Guimarães Castle, uh, which is a must visit if you're there. The area of the Guimarães Castle and the Passo dos Duques of Guimarães, passing by the Church of São Miguel, are a must visit. The Passo dos Duques houses several rooms with exhibitions of sacred art, but you won't need anything inside for it to be worth a visit. The 15th century building is magnificent and constitutes one of the most beautiful examples of medieval Portuguese architecture. Guimarães Castle, closely linked to Portugal's independence struggles, is surrounded by a very pleasant garden where you can have a picnic in the summer, surrounded by children and young people who run and play surrounded by history. It is one of the places in the city that its residents are most proud of. It was in this castle that Dom Afonso Henriques resisted the siege of the forces of King Afonso VI of Leon. With Egas Muniz, which was an influenced nobleman, of whom Don Fonso Henriques was a pupil of, being sent to negotiate with the king and promised that Don Fonso Henriques would continue to be his vassal and that the siege was lifted. However, Don Fonso Henriques would not abandon his claims to independence. The Passo dos Duques de Guimarães is one of the most visited national palaces and it's no coincidence Despite having been controversially restored during the Estado Novo, which refers to the dictatorship we had in Portugal, this building is majestic and beautiful. Its size is architectural characteristics of the wall, ceilings and chimneys, which show to be influenced by the Northern European stately architecture, makes it a unique example in the Iberian Peninsula of one of the must-see places to visit in Guimarães. Ordered to be built by Don Afonso, future Duke of Bragança, bastard son of King Don Juan I, was inhabited in the 15th century, but was gradually abandoned, leading to the deg degradation that worsened until the 20th century. Another tip would be to remember the past in the leather zone. Entering the narrow streets and houses in front of the church of Nossa Senhora da Consolação and Santos Passos will pass by the leather tanning tanks. Leathers have been a long tradition in Guimarães dating back to medieval times. This activity contributed greatly to the economy, prosperity of the town and the development of footwear industry and only began to decline in the 60s. Admire the monastery of São Francisco. The origins of the establishment of the Franciscan order in Guimarães date back to 1217, but the Franciscan convent that existed next to the walls were demolished by order of Don Dinis, as it compromised the security of the town in the event of a siege. In the 1400s, Don Juan I ordered the rebuild of the convent in the place where it still stands today, and the work lasted most of the 15th century. The church underwent several renovations until the 18th century. 
do get lost in the streets in the historic center of Guimarães, you won't regret it. There's always these beautiful facades and old wonky houses, which really makes you feel like you went back in time, which is quite amazing. At the end of November and beginning of December, the city of Guimarães gains new life in the cold of winter. The Mansanzinhas, the Pregão and the Robalheiras are some of the traditions of the Festas Nicolinas, the party of the city's high school students, but the longest night is the city in the 20, on the 29th of November, when the Pinheiro Parade and Burial is celebrated, and the night is spent beating bass drums in the contagious rhythm. Once a year, the historic centre gains a new life, returning to the past. Local restaurants transform their terraces into authentic taverns and there are lots of stands selling medieval products. The city streets are squares and are filled with crowns, delight and reenacting scenes, history, music and dances and food stalls. Between the Pastos Dukes and Castel de Guimarães, there are several festivals set up, an authentic camp with horses, goats, the king's craftsmen and soldiers arrange with their weapons and challenge the boldest to join them. All of this would be during the Afonsina affair in Guimarães. Also visit the monastery of Santa Maria da Costa. Located on the slopes of Peña, overlooking the city of Guimarães, in a place with the trees, Roman and pre-Roman occupation, it was said to have been the seat of the Portuguese county palaces. In the 16th century, a monastery of the Order of St. Jerome was built, which underwent changes in the following centuries. After the extinction of the male religious orders, the monastery passed into possession of the state, and in the late 1970s, it was transformed onto once Portugal's posadas, the cloisters, gardens, balconies, made this one the most emblematic posadas in Portugal. You can visit without staying. When visiting Guimarães, its position is a good road and rail connections, making it a good starting point as an alternative to the city of Porto for exploring much of northern of Portugal. For example, Braga. You can visit the capital of Minho from Guimarães. Braga, the city of archbishops, is the largest center of religious studies in Portugal and has a long history that extends to the Celtic occupation and its foundation as Bracara Augusta by the Romans in 16 BC. You can easily get from Guimarães to Braga with your own car, by bus or train. A bit further north from Guimarães, you have Viana do Castelo by the sea, which is absolutely stunning place to visit, absolutely worth it. It's about an hour drive from Guimarães. Viana do Castelo, as many other towns in Portugal, are part of the Santiago de Compostela Way, which we will talk about in another episode. Back to Viana do Castelo, is an Atlantic coast and a port city just 30 minutes from the border with Spain, so very much at the top. The richness and diversity of its culture, gastronomy and monuments are an open invitation to visit. Viana has an intimate relationship with the Atlantic Ocean, as Rio Lima, the river that crosses it, and with the mountains, of course. In the communion with these three forces of nature, its history was built. I'm speaking a little bit like Yoda now, but <laughs> don't know why. Museums and the archaeological museum centers prove that its occupation since the Iron Age, 
The time of the founding of the Citania of the Monte de Luzia religious monuments, with emphasis to the Temple of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, better known as Santuario de Santa Luzia, are the great assets to get to know the soul of these people with the Minho spirit. And of course, concerts and festivals, pilgrimage and Our Lady of Agony, cultural and recreational activities bring a lot of excitement to the city throughout the year and have more and more enough reasons to visit it. Of course, summertime is the best time to visit most of the cities in around the north, I suppose, because it does rain a lot. And it's not great when you're just, you know, walking the streets in the rain or trying to take cool selfies with an umbrella. It kind of gets in the way. So, yes, definitely summertime between anything between June and September, I'd say it's it's the best time. There is also the costume museum that is quite interesting. The originality and color of Vienna's costume pieces spread around the world and are already a brand of national recognition. Not forgetting, of course, the delicate filigree jewelry from Vienna. The oldest pieces of filigree discovered in the Iberian Peninsula date back to 2500 BC, but its origin is unclear. Possibly these pieces belong to merchants and navigators from the Middle East that were not manufactured here. Only during the rule of the Romans, mining began to exist in the peninsula. And out of curiosity, it was during this period that mines of Pia and Banja mountains in Gondomar, the north of Portugal, became to be explored. But only thousands of years later, in the 8th century, we managed to ensure with certainty that the filigree was being developed and produced in Portugal. New patterns emerged, and little by little the filigree of the peninsula became to differentiate itself from the filigree on other parts of the world. While in neighboring Spain the tradition of a filigree was lost, in Portugal it was refined. And from the 17th century, Portuguese filigree already had its own imagery and molds that were very different from any other filigree. Before we wrap things up, I just wanted to drop a quick note. Um, as you might have noticed that I don't have one of those fancy podcast microphones. Nope, I am just using my good old mobile phone microphone. And as for the editing, well, I'm rolling with a free app on my Apple device. So if things do sound a bit rough around the edges, just think of it as a vintage vinyl crackle. I promise I'll work on making things smoother as we go along. Lastly, and as you know, English is not my first language. So if my accent tickles your funny bone or leaves you scratching your heads at times, just remember that I am trying my best to keep it entertaining. Thank you for tuning in again, and I appreciate your patience. Do stay tuned for more because we're just getting started. And uh, if it does take off, I will invest on uh, getting a better mic. So until then, keep it quirky. Até breve.